Uh, hello, this is Justin E.H. Smith, and this is the audio version of today's uh, Substack recording. Today is June 5th, 2022. Uh, notes on the Vibe Shift. Section 1. In Le Temps Retrouvé, the seventh and final volume of Marcel Proust's À la Recherche du Temps Perdu, World War I has finally begun. All the military analogies of the previous six volumes, which our narrator explicitly acknowledged wishing to master for literary effect when he accompanied his friend Robert de Saint-Loup on his field exercises in the École de Cavalerie, now double in their utility as, a straightforward, as straightforward descriptions of current events. Proust's basic formula is fairly easy to crack. Say something about love and its rules of engagement, compare it to illness and the institutions of medicine, compare it to war and the institutions of diplomacy, repeat. The war has suddenly made everything different. Old social rifts now seem incomprehensible. Whatever it was that triggered them can scarcely be reconstructed by a thing as unreliable as human memory. The war, in short, has brought about a vibe shift. Proust writes, Monsieur Bonton's Dreyfusism as well, both invisible and constitutive, like that of all men of politics, was now no more apparent than the bones beneath the skin. No one remembered any longer that he had been a Dreyfusard, since the gens du monde were now distracted and forgetful, and also since it had been a long time since then, and they made as if they thought it had been even longer. For it was one of the most modish ideas to say that the pre-war period was separated from the war by something as deep as a geological period, simulating a span of time no less long, and the nationalist Brichot himself, when he alluded to the Dreyfus affair, was in the habit of saying, in those prehistoric times, end of quote. World War I coincided with the broad infiltration into the French cultural imagination of the idea of deep time, when in particular Paleolithic parietal art was elevated from a pastime of curious curé de campagne, who struggled to convince the peasants not to stable their donkeys in caves where the burdened beasts would lick the ochre outline of a woolly rhinoceros right off the walls in vain search of salt, into a field of systematic research that at least sought to imitate science. Many of the leading specialists were still Catholic clergymen, notably the Jesuit Pierre Taillard de Chardin, famous and infamous for both the Peking Man and the Piltdown hoax, and for a brief moment it seemed as if the old earth sensibility was finding its harmony with faith, rather than remaining a bastion for the libres esprits, as it had been when Benoit de Maillet faintly anonymized his 1755 Teliamed, read the title backwards for a hint as to its authorship, 
a treatise on the sedimentology of the Nile that dated the origin of the earth back several hundred millions of years earlier than Bishop James Usher would have had it, October 23, 4004 BCE at roughly 6 p.m. in his 1650 Annals of the World. Delightfully, Usher's rank in the church was primate of all Ireland. And as it would be again when American evangelicals came to dominate the debate over the compatibility of scientific and biblical chronology. For a while, I mean, even reactionaries like the fictional Bichot, Brichot, sorry, could feel our fragile human existence as one suspended within what Paolo Rossi vividly calls the dark abyss of time. Human history floating on the surface of an ocean in which human prehistory constitutes the relatively thin mesopelagic zone, while everything beneath that is the geological, which got by just fine in its infinite tectonic patience without any humans at all, prehistoric or historic. Bichot could feel... Sorry, I have to check whether it's Brichot or Bichot. Brichot or Bichot could feel the dark abyss of time and summon it rhetorically to drive home the experience of the dark abyss of war. Section 2. Living as I do, mostly by choice, in a post-Babel cacophony of languages, I find I often discern meanings that are not really there. This is particularly easy to do in the contact zones of the former Angevin Empire, which more than a millennium's worth of cross-hybridity between English and French has brought it about that this empire's ruins are populated principally by faux amis, so that one must not so much learn new words as reconceive words one already knows. Thus deception becomes disappointment, to assist is not to help, but only to be present. To report is to postpone. To defend is to prohibit, sometimes. To verbalize is to fine. To sense is to smell. To mount is to get in. To descend is to get out. A location is a rental. Ice cream has a perfume instead of a flavor, and so on. The gentle shift one has to make to reconcile all these false friends occurs not only at the lexical level, but also in morphology and phonology. And, one, and once it takes place, one starts to discern the likenesses of Outremanche cousins that previously remained hidden. Thus, Guillaume is the cousin of William, and Gardien, Gardien of Warden, and Guichet of Wicket, and Guerre of War. There are several more such g w pairings, and so it should not be too surprising that when I was recently reading the label on what in France passes for guacamole, tartinade aux avocats, they feel the need to explain, it struck me that I was reading not a Nahuatl-derived word for an avocado dish, but the French cognate of guacamole, jeu de la taupe if you must know. I get confused, I mean, and the confusion is compounded by the echo in my head of languages I used to know better than French, and the hopeful rattling of new languages that I might someday know as well as French. Thus, when I struggle to find the Russian verb, 
priobristi, to acquire, to obtain, often all I can come up with is obtenuts, which after a few seconds of stroke-like disorientation, I realize I have made up on the spot, on the model of the French verb obtenir, but which on the presumption of Slavic meanings for its component morphemes appears to mean something like to cover in shade. Tiens means shadow. This mistake is remarkable in part because it assimilates one language's relatively rare class of verbal suffix, those ending in isti, to another language's similarly rare verbal ending, ir. Other mistakes are more mundane. Whenever I see the German mineral water brand, Reiner Quelle, I suppose not that I am seeing water from a pure source, but rather the near nonsensical combination of French words, reine, quelle, queen, witch. And to circle back to the matter at hand, every time I come across the hot new phrase, vibe shift, somehow I process it as if it were a woman or a wife traveling by ship or, on a more colloquial reading of the verb, pissing. Das Weib shift. Section 3. Homophonic translation has generated greater masterpieces than this, of course. Among the more commendable contributions to the genre, we must surely count David Melnick's 1983 Men in Aida, a translation of Book One of Homer's Iliad, which begins in the original. Hmm, should I attempt to read this in the Greek? Yeah, okay, here we go. Menin aide thea peleiadeo achileos, ulo menen he mure achaios alge eteke, polas diptimus psychas aide proiapsen and which is rendered by Melnik as Meninaida they appeal, eh, adeo Achilles, allow men in emery Achaeans, alge ethic, eh? Paul asked if Timusuk as Aida pro yapsin. <laughs> yeah, pro yapsin. Uh, I apologize for my Greek pronunciation. The English pronunciation was probably as good as it gets. And it goes on in this vein, right at the edge of nonsense, for another several hundred lines. The beauty of homophony is that you barely have to change anything. The original text already contains its own translation, which to obtain is simply to affect a slight gestalt in one's own perception, to switch over to a parallel track, much as when one learns the many words that constitute the le lexical treasuries of both English and French. You might think by now that I have gone full gonzo, just saying whatever, stalling for time until sing some singular idea comes into focus. But not so fast. What concerns me generically is the shift, in all its many forms, whether of vibes, meanings, magnetic polarity of the earth, or the wavelength of electromagnetic radiation, redshift. In the case of vibes, I understand it, the sh as I understand it, the shift was first predicted in an influential piece in the ultra-zeitgeisty section of New York Magazine 
known as The Cut, on February 16, 2022. The prophecy was then fulfilled in a handful of interventions in May, notably Will Harrison's Escape from Dimes Square in The Baffler, which refers to the vibe shift, now capitalized a total of 15 times, and Nick Burns's transatlantic take on New York's hipster wars for the New Statesman. In my old-world senescence, I had trouble following most of what these two latter pieces were on about, but I gathered at least that they had identified a change in the winds that was both cultural and political. In particular, they had noticed a surge in cultural prestige and legitimacy of forms of expression that had until recently been understood, at least by those who wished to make use of them, as lying beyond the pale of what the mainstream tastemakers were willing to tolerate. More concretely, the transgressive or dissident right was said to have won a decisive battle against the neo-Puritan or woke left, and could now claim at least a significant portion of Lower Manhattan as its own. The financial district was now being compared in the confidential group chats to some breakaway People's Republic of Donetsk, while Park Slope, with its in-this-house signs and its rainbow flags, not to mention its Ukrainian flags, was now akin to some relatively unperturbed Western stronghold like Oviv or Ivano-Frankivsk. These transformations were suspected to be local instances of larger national and global events, the election of Biden notably and the corresponding degeneration of the resistance into a desperate like-seeking operation, inflation, war, and most importantly, the strong sense that the more strident expressions of the Trump-era progressive consensus had run their course and fallen out of fashion. All paper yellows, and any new way of speaking will come to seem out of it sooner or later. Ways of speaking that were first incubated online by children with no knowledge of history, and evidently next to no knowledge of physical, economic, or social reality, naturally did not prove an exception to this rule. It was a strange way of speaking, the strangest to come along in my lifetime self-certain, undialectical, content with a few easily memorized slogans, much like those Mao held fully distilled in his red book for the peasant masses. Yet the slogans were most zealously interiorized not by the peasants, but by the educated classes, precaritized as they were, anxious about the security of their positions in a changing world, but at least equipped with the power to deftly manipulate symbols. Yet even if some of these symbols were inherited from revolutionary legacies, even sometimes from Mao himself, those manipulating them seldom seemed really to be taking up the mantle of these legacies. The ones who mastered them while undergraduates at Yale still went on to their Deloitte consultancy jobs. By the, time, uh, under, uh, by the time expertise in manipulating the same symbols had filtered down to the state schools, the job opportunities they opened up grew correspondingly less attractive. Someone a month or so ago shared a photograph of a coffee mug with the words they-them on it, 
spotted, if I remember correctly, at a dollarama in rural Tennessee. The currency was rapidly devaluing, for any signal weakens as it spreads. An optimist might, of course, take the spreading to mean the currency had simply become so universally valid as to blend into the landscape almost unperceived. But it also meant, undoubtedly, that the centers of cultural ferment were going to have to come up with new ways of speaking yet again. Hence the vibe shift. Section 4. Periodization is always artificial, and a fortiori it is so when we seek to call it in the present moment, rather than simply to project it onto the past, as when we date the long 19th century from 1789 to 1914, or we say that the scientific revolution begins circa 1600. This is to say, among other things, that the Anthropocene is not real, and neither is the Cretaceous, for that matter. What are real are events, after which some things are different and some are the same, such as the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction event, when the asteroid hit the Earth and killed most, but not all, of the dinosaurs. Significantly, even David Wallace Wells, author of 2017's bestseller, Uninhabitable Earth, has shifted from trying to convince us we absolutely should be scared of the anthropogenic destruction of all life to a somewhat more sanguine view on which we are not literally killing the planet, as the youth of extinction rebellion often put it, but rather on which we are creating conditions for ourselves that are going to compel radical changes, like it or not, in the way we live. Mass migrations and resettlement, war over scarce resources, and so on, but not, strictly speaking, the end. For a while, as I discussed extensively in this space, it seemed to me the Russian invasion of Ukraine was itself shaping up to constitute a vibe shift, a moment after which everything else would seem, as Brichot put, put it, like the prehistoric times. But one of the most striking lessons of these past 100 days is the power of the mechanisms that regulate our era, that conserve the perpetual motion of our technological regime, to swallow up even such an enormous event as this, to digest it and to make it part of itself. I think of the avian dinosaurs, as some supercilious taxonomists insist on calling them, after the asteroid hit who must have gone right on twittering, as birds do, and of how the simple sound of their song must have sounded like a sort of continuity, too. While that is reassuring in the abstract, in the lived experience of the present moment, it is jarring to see the machine of technologically mediated human discursivity rumble on as it does, ensuring epochal continuity from day to day, and one can't help but wonder just what degree of cataclysm precisely, would finally make it shut up. Section 5. So the Ukraine war was not so much a vibe shift as the enfolding of new events into a process already in place. This process is not unrelated to the one that landed the pronouns mug in a Tennessee dollarama. I was struck by a recent survey that showed a sudden precipitous surge in support for LGBTQIA plus rights in Ukraine. 
While this might be interpreted at face value as a measure of decreasing homophobia and transphobia, another line of approach makes it appear rather as a measure of increasing interest, for obvious reasons, in joining a geopolitical union in which the rainbow flag is now a clear, if still unofficial, symbol. This is a familiar process. I can remember in Romania, in the years leading up to that country's accession to the European Union, the efforts to ban smoking in public venues. This was not first and foremost an anti-smoking campaign, but rather a pro-Europe campaign, in which a backwards country still, in, still enjoying its backwards freedoms contorted itself to get in line with the stricter rules of a supranational bloc that rightly or wrongly, represented at the symbolic level the correct way of doing things. A few years ago in the UK, in Birmingham, I believe, though my memories blur, I was struck to find myself in the city centre surrounded by a nearly homogenous population of Muslim immigrants, walking amongst concrete anti-terrorism barriers that had been painted in the rainbow colours of pride. This was the first time the blunt truth hit me, that the values of diversity are not incompatible with brute force, and can even be delivered as part of the package of violent domination. Jumped, jump forward a few years to Pride Month 2022, and we find open acknowledgments of this fact that would have seemed pure parody in 2018 the U.S. Marines coloring bullets attached to a camouflage helmet the color of the rainbow flag, the notorious union-busting security agency Pinkerton announcing its own commitment to fighting homophobia, and so on. If there has been a critical wave of related events over the past few months, giving rise at least to the perception of a vibe shift, if, as Marx and Engels would have put it, this is a moment when the quantity of these events spills over into a qualitative shift in the character of our relations, I would say it comes down to this, that a good number of people are simply no longer buying the false radicalism of the past few years. Whether it's the HR staff of Fortune 500 companies pretending to seek to demolish capitalism, or the United States Marine Corps pretending bullets can ever symbolize anything other than death, the bluff has been called. It has been called most compellingly, perhaps, by Olufemi Otaiwo in his important new book, Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else, which at some point I thought I'd review, but about which now I'll just say a few words. Taiwo, whom besides this book I know only from Twitter, is perhaps the most intellectually generous philosopher working today. He is the very opposite of the shibboleth-laying progressives who dominate in academic, academic social media. If every left intellectual were like him, I sincerely believe I would feel at home among them. I would also be a lot happier on Twitter. It is a delight to see him there, supporting people with whom he may agree only 30% or 40%, who have trouble articulating coherent views but are clearly onto something nonetheless, who have major blind spots like all of us, 
or who belong to cultural strata that academia tends to deplore or to try not to see. I especially love Taiwo's enthusiasm for good old-fashioned pugilism, pugilism, as in actual literal fisticuffs. He's also a philosopher who plainly could not care less where current academic philosophy draws the lines of its discipline and pursues his interest in the history of South American silver mining or global food policy as someone who is plainly bigger than whatever his PhD is technically held to license. Anyhow, Taiwo makes a compelling case that there is a salvageable core of identity politics, as it was expressed in the 1977 statement of the Combahee River Collective, a group of black feminists who really could not have foreseen the subsequent corporate uptake of the jargon of identity. He condemns that uptake in terms as strong as you will hear from anyone. This sets him apart from the majority of left intellectuals who have tended to interpret concerns about this uptake, as expressed by moderate centrists or liberals, to be a distraction at best, or at worst to be a dishonest crypto-rightist move aimed at discrediting whatever initial political impulse made the jargon available for cynical appropriation in the first place. Taiwo's willingness to grant to elite capture the serious attention it deserves, more than anything else I can think of over the past few months, marks a true and proper shift in the zeitgeist. It is going to be a lot harder now, I predict, for anyone to pretend they aren't seeing Lululemon's fake-ass anti-capitalism, let alone to take it seriously. Section 6. Even prehistory is not prehistoric. The advent of writing, which is generally used to mark the beginning of human history off from what came before, is only one of a suite of innovations that makes our past more legible. But that's a practical matter of relevance for us researchers, and not for the human beings who lived before written records came along. There is no prehistory, and there are no years zero. I have on occasion found myself so moved by the upheavals of the moment as to call them, but then what I find afterwards that I is, is that I am still living the same life, except that some things are different now. Social media exacerbate and quicken the perception of radical breaks. Their economic logic, in fact, requires that we perceive new such breaks to be happening daily or weekly. Thus, nothing will ever be the same after the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, or after Elon buys Twitter, or after Harry and Meghan escape from Buckingham, or whatever. But the real break will be the break from these endless breaks. This will come not so much when different things start happening, for different things can always be devoured by the same hungry machine, as when we start to see the same things in a different way as, again, in a sort of gestalt, as when the rainbow flag that used to signal safety warps before our eyes, without changing in any of its real properties, into something that also looks like a threat. <laughs>